Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook. And I'm recording this on Friday afternoon, uh, late afternoon. And uh, what a week it's been. My goodness, uh, earlier today, we had effectively the sacking of the UK Chancellor of the Exchequer less than 40 days after the new Prime Minister took office and uh, put him in number 11 Downing Street. He's been sacked and replaced by Jeremy Hunt, the former health secretary and leadership contender a few years ago. And meanwhile, we've had a bit of a roller coaster ride in the stock markets again. The uh, FTSE All Share Index was uh, down three days and it jumped on Thursday and uh, finished slightly up on Friday after the news of the change in chancellors. It's been, say, a very dramatic week. Uh, we've had the issues around the guilt prices in the UK, threats to pension funds, and the Bank of England telling pension funds they have to put their house in order uh, by the end of this week. It's been a very choppy week indeed. Uh, and investment trusts have taken another hit this week. We've seen the uh, closed ended fund index fall for the first three days of the week. Again, they were up slightly on Thursday, but uh, the average discount has widened out a tiny bit to around 16% at the end of this week. And the closed end fund index is down 22.4% this year uh, as of this morning, while the all share index is down 8.6%. Should have said this perhaps more often in past weeks that the uh, closed end investment trust index is uh, a weighted average. So it reflects the fact that some of the very biggest investment trusts, the likes of Scottish Mortgage and so on, have a disproportionate weight in its performance. If you take an equal weighted look at the performance of investment trust, it's been uh, less marked than that. But what has not been uh, less marked has been the fact that there have been sharp falls in discounts across almost every sector this year, some minor exceptions, and particularly concentrated in the last few weeks by what's been happening in the infrastructure and renewable energy space and commercial property, both of which have reacted very negatively to the political developments and the standoff, if you like, between the government and the financial markets, which so far appears to have been won decisively by the financial markets, forcing change in government policy. The bond vigilantes are back, one could say. So in this uh, very dramatic week, we've had some interesting results. I'll summarize those in a moment. I remind you that the normal data about uh, share prices, NAVs and discount movements, of which have been quite extreme, are available on the Moneymakers website for subscribers. This week, as my guest, I have turned to Richard Curley, who is the manager of the Jupiter Alternative Monthly Income Fund, a fund that only invests in investment trusts, and also a manager of the Fund of Investment Trust, an open-ended vehicle that he's been managing together with this other fund for the past 10 years. Richard is a very experienced fund manager, and uh, we've had conversations on several occasions in the past. I thought it'd be useful to bring you some of the reflections of a professional investor in investment trusts. Another one after we've had Nick Greenwood and uh, Alistair Lang and so on in recent weeks. So that'll be coming up in just a moment. Uh, but first, I'm going to quickly summarize some of the news we've had this week without going into great detail. We've had some results from uh, a number of investment trusts, as always, including Mercantile, Newstar, Schroeder Japan Growth, Fidelity Asian Values, 
JP Morgan Multi-Asset Growth and Income, ICG Enterprise, the uh, Private Equity Trust, Target Healthcare, one of the specialist uh, property trusts, and also PRS REIT, an interesting vehicle which is building property to rent rather than property to buy. Those last two have been uh, in the eye of the storm of the sell-off in commercial property, uh, and we'll be talking about that with Richard. Meanwhile, Fundsmith Emerging Equities has published a circular that sets out its wind-up plan, which is going to require 75% shareholder approval at a general meeting on the 11th of November. And if that vote goes through, the listings will be cancelled on the 14th of November and money returned to shareholders about a month later. Uh, Meanwhile, fundraising, of course, has taken a back seat during these difficult market conditions. We have heard from the Sustainable Farmland Trust has decided to pause its IPO process due to current market volatility. We did have one fundraising success this week when uh, Harmony Energy Income announced that it would manage to uh, complete a C-share issue, uh, but only raised uh, about £15 million against its target of £130 million, which I think tells you that conditions have indeed been tough in the fundraising market. We haven't had an IPO of any size this year at all, the, first, the longest period without an IPO going back to the start of this century. Perhaps more interest to many shareholders would be the fact that uh, Hypnosis Songs, ticker S-O-N-G, has announced a share buyback program in order to try and address its discount, which has widened out significantly in recent weeks. It's gone out to over 40%. But earlier, Hypnosis had announced that it managed to refinance its debt, which had been one of the concerns that the markets had about the way that this uh, interesting new trust had been progressing. Taylor Maritime uh, Shipping Investment Trust, ticker TMI, announced its recent agreement to buy Grindrod Shipping, having made an indicative offer in August. And that values the uh, target company at about 500 million US dollars. Taylor Maritime already owns uh, just over a quarter percent of the shares and is selling one of its ships in order to help part fund the deal. Meanwhile, LXI REIT, the commercial property trust that specializes in long index-linked leases, has put out a trading update ahead of its interim results due next month, saying that it expects its NAV per share to be not less than 139p compared with the figure at 31st of March, which was just over 142p. The trust said that the net initial yield used in the valuation process had risen from 46 to 4.9%, and that's significant because one of the consequences of rising gilt yields is that it is changing the economics and the potential returns available in commercial property. Always been very sensitive to interest rates and bond yields. And uh, LXI, which recently completed its uh, merger with Secure Income REIT, has not been immune from the sell-off and is trading at a offer. It is a very unusual discount. And then finally, we heard from Biopharma Credit, one of the debt funds that... Uh, lends money to companies operating in the healthcare and pharmaceutical sector. It's declared a special dividend of 4.5 cents to be paid on the 18th of November, uh, alongside its normal quarterly dividend of 1.75 cents. So that's the main news headlines this week in the investment trust sector. As I said, we've seen as the normal movements in share prices, NAVs and discounts this week. And notable amongst those has been the impact on the infrastructure space. Over the last five days uh, leading up to this morning, we've seen discounts widening by anywhere between 
8 and 13% for uh, many of the companies in the renewable energy infrastructure space, uh, though that has reversed somewhat this morning with some of them recovering quite strongly. So that brings me to my conversation with Richard Curling, the manager of the two Jupiter funds that invest in other investment trusts. I spoke to uh, Richard shortly after the Prime Minister was trying to explain her decision to fire the Chancellor, a somewhat momentous event in uh, UK political history, but in keeping with the kind of drama that we've seen uh, on and off, uh, well, ever since, I guess you could date this back to Brexit and even beyond that to the coalition. It's been a very turbulent period in the UK political scene. Richard, you've been around for a long time in the markets. I hope you won't mind saying that. And you probably can remember back to uh, events like 1992, when the UK was ejected from the exchange rate mechanism and eventually we lost the Chancellor on that day as well. I mean, these are pretty rare and extraordinary uh, occasions, are they not? Uh, what's your reaction to the events of the last, uh, well, last month, I suppose, since Liz Truss became Prime Minister? Yes, I mean, clearly we are living in the most extraordinary time. And I think this is, as you say, right up there with the previous political or political economic crises that we've had in the past. And I think what this means, without getting into the politics of the issue, is that there is a political risk premium imposed on the UK market. And I think that is not likely to go away in the short term until we get some stability uh, and we can see that really just through the volatility that we're seeing in the gilt market, in the index linked gilt market, in the equity markets. So, yeah, extraordinary times, as you say. It's interesting also because I think from the UK perspective, obviously, it's it's been very dramatic and the political turmoil will, as you say, continue. It's by no means certain, I think, uh, depending who you listen to, whether Liz Truss can survive herself as Prime Minister. It would be very interesting to see whether that happens. Uh, but we've had Brexit, we've had Johnson came and gone. But it's been interesting also, of course, that this is not just a UK story. This is an international story as well. I mean, it's headline news in the Wall Street Journal. It's headline news in other countries around the world because, I think it's fair to say, as you said, it's part of a wider issue. It's not just about the UK government, how it's handling its uh, budget proposals. Uh, it's actually about a lot of stresses in the system which are coming to the surface now that uh, interest rates are rising so fast. Yeah, I think that's an important point. Uh, and we need to put what's happened in the UK into an international context. So interest rates have been rising everywhere in response to rising inflation. And basically, I think the way I see it is that in markets around the world, there are, or in economies around the world, there are three factors that are interlinking and three important issues. So inflation, interest rates, and recession. Those are basically what people are worried about. Inflation is in the system. Interest rates are rising in order to counter inflation. At what level does that then lead to recession? And should we be worried about inflation or should we be worried about recession? And it's the way those three factors interrelate that I think is what's driving markets at the moment. And at one moment, people are worried about inflation. The next minute, they're worried about recession. And what we've seen this year, basically in markets, is a big derating that has gone on. And what people are worried about now, of course, is having derated when and if earnings decline and by how much. And that's, if you like, the next leg that people are looking for in markets. And some of that, of course, is already discounted in prices. So we'll have to see how that pans out. But it's clear that the base case assumption is that there is going to be some kind of recession now. 
Would you agree with the general kind of market nostrum that uh, in periods like this, and particularly at the moment when the, the Fed is pursuing this very active interest rate increase policy and other central banks uh, are following to varying degrees, you know, that in the context of what's happened in the last 18 months or so, that they will carry on until something breaks, essentially. And that means that something blows up, there is a bit of a crisis or the markets fall so dramatically that they have to reverse course. Um, do you think that's a fair assessment or are you one of those who thinks that the, the Fed is going to pivot sometime soon, won't be able to take any more punishment from the markets? Or do you think, where would you stand on that particular issue? Um, so if only I knew is the answer. But I think the Fed have made it quite clear that they are really going at it to get inflation out of the system before it becomes too embedded and really takes off if that hasn't already happened. So I think they are going to be very tough indeed and countenance quite a lot of pain in terms of recessionary pain, and that's really in unemployment, in order to get inflation under control. So that's what I expect. I mean, I actually think that we'll see pretty soon, sort of between now and the first half of next year, that actually the numbers on inflation will probably peak and that will take the pressure off interest rate rises. But I do think that whilst we may have peaked inflation and that will be coming down, the embedded level of inflation is going to be much higher going forward than it has been in the past. And that, I think, is an important part of everybody's investment decision, that a level of inflation is here to stay and that there has been a fundamental change in interest rates and the end of cheap money. And I do absolutely believe that we are now at a key turning point and that the QE is ending or has ended and the era of easy money, easy and cheap money has ended. And that changes the dynamics of investment quite dramatically. For all types of uh, assets, indeed. Yes. And there, I mean, it's the repricing of risk, essentially, that covers all assets in all markets. And so instead of lower for longer, that kind of phrase we used, uh, we're going to be looking at a world where we do have positive bond yields. We have them uh, at levels that we haven't seen for a few years. And we're not going to suddenly go back to the world that we've had before. No, I think probably higher for longer is going to be the probably the watchword that we should be looking at. And in the same way as some of these things are reversing and turning on their heads, I mean, rather than buying the dips, maybe people have been selling the rallies that we've seen um, recently. Indeed. We always do get rallies. Well, let's talk a little bit then about how this is all impacted on the investment trust sector, which is the one in which you're professionally engaged, and uh, as indeed am I. Uh, I mean, again, from an investment trust point of view, it has been a quite remarkable year, has it not? I mean, we have seen a significant derating of a lot of investment trusts. The average discount across many sectors has, uh, has widened quite significantly. And the investment trust sector, because of the nature of it, has sold off more sharply than uh, some markets, at least. Uh, the UK uh, FTSE 100, for example, has not come down as much as the average investment trust. So what's been going on? This started about the beginning of the year, and it's been fairly relentless, but has accelerated, I think, in the last uh, few weeks. What do you think is going on as far as investment trusts are concerned? Well, the underlying theme of the market has been this rise in interest rates and the switch from a focus on growth style investing to value style investing performing. So that's the general background. But what's happened in investment trusts, of course, is that uh, the moves have been exaggerated by the widening of discounts. And this has been one of those years when, because markets have been going down, discounts have widened out 
from about 2% at the beginning of the year to about 15 or 16% now, and that's an average across the board. So not only have uh, investors suffered the decline in the asset values, but also the discounts have exaggerated that move by widening out. Now, that, of course, is bad news, but from where we are now and looking forward rather than back, there is the opportunity to benefit from that because when markets turn, and they will turn uh, eventually, you get the opportunity not only for the market going up, but the discount narrowing, uh, which in turn will magnify that move of the market up. So actually, it presents a great opportunity, I think, for investors in investment trusts. And uh, of course, I mean, the nature of investment trusts, if you like, the implicit gearing that's involved uh, both in the trust themselves and in the existence of discounts, uh, that helps you on the way up. But you get the flip side of that is it uh, it punishes you when they come down. But in due course, uh, I mean, we, the, the level we got to at the start of this year, around 2%, as you say, I mean, that's very narrow by historical standards for investment trusts, notwithstanding the fact that we have a number of trusts now pursuing zero discount policies and so on. So it's not a total surprise that we've actually seen widening this year, or it was bound to happen at some point, was it not? Yes, I think it was. But within that average, of course, there's been a huge variation. You know, you've had a lot of the infrastructure and renewable companies, and in fact, the alternative income sector generally has traded at a premium for much of the year until very recently. So on the one side, you've had quite a lot of the investment company sector on a premium. And then on the other hand, you've had some more traditional discounts where companies have struggled to close the discounts either through poor performance or the fact they're in the wrong sectors or that people don't have much investor interest in at the moment. So, you know, those general figures actually disguise quite a lot that's going on under the surface. You know, I think one of the interesting things we've seen since this extraordinary sharp increase in guilt yields following that mini budget on the 23rd of September is how quickly a lot of those alternative income stocks responded to that. And I think it was the the sharp move and the volatility around that that caused that a very sharp move. And people were naturally saying, well, they started off by saying, well, actually, if gilts are yielding four, four and a half percent, I need much more than that, much more than, say, five for uh, infrastructure company, uh, just on a yield basis. And then people moved on to say, well, with uh, higher gilts, the discount rate that people use to value alternative assets in the alternative investment companies so that discount rate will have to go up to reflect the rise in the risk premium that you need on top of the risk-free rate, which is the guilt rate. So you need a risk premium on top of that. And that means that asset values will come down. And so the early part of this crisis in alternative income was really about trying to work out how much that would be, how much would discount rates have to go up? And that's discount rate being the rate at which you discount the future cash flows of these companies back to get an asset value. And that was the initial discussion that people had. And then other things have come along, like in the renewable sector, the uh, price cap has been a big issue for people. And we've, we still need further clarity on that. We got some earlier in the week and we can discuss that if you like. But I think one of the things that also strikes me is that investors haven't been looking, they've been looking at NAVs very intensely, and that's quite understandable, but maybe they haven't been looking at the cash flows on the other side of the equation. 
So the fact that a lot of these companies benefit from inflation and that renewables have benefited from higher power prices too. So those are all you know, very positive factors. And I still think there's a very strong case to be made for you know, high quality long-term cash flows that have some sort of inflation linkage, uh, which can then be used to pay out higher dividends to investors. And you know, that fact that it's inflation linked in some way and therefore going up, given that we're going to have inflation, makes it very different from bonds, you know, which are a fixed return. And that, I think, is the real opportunity in, in this case. So I, maybe I think that a lot of these alternative income funds have overreacted, perhaps. Indeed. And I think that was a question I was going to put to you. Has the market overreacted? Because it always happened very quickly. And of course, the gilt yields have moved very quickly. Uh, and we don't yet know where they're going to settle, uh, if they are going to settle. But I looked at some numbers. I mean, I was just looking at some numbers from one of the big brokers. For example, industrial commercial property trusts. The average for the last year, they've been trading at a premium of 2.6%. They were trading at this, when I looked at these numbers earlier this week, at a discount of 36%. I mean, that is an extraordinarily big move. And that's been perhaps the most extreme. Uh, but there's also been similar moves in private equity. They've moved discounts have widened even further. They're already quite wide, but they've widened even further. And in some of the equity sectors as well, we've seen uh, things sell off. Uh, infrastructure, you mentioned core infrastructure has gone from a premium of 10% on average to minus 2% and so on. So you're absolutely right. There's been this big repricing, a rethinking about uh, what these things are worth. But um, the speed of it does rather suggest to me that you're probably right, that by the time we get some more clarity about these things, there will be some bargains out there. Have you been uh, brave enough to take any advantage of those bargains yourself yet, looking uh, at what you're doing with your funds, Richard? Well, the answer is yes, I have. I haven't done much, I have to say, but I have been topping up a few of the renewable companies. And that is because I think they were overreacting to the uncertainty, not only about the rising gilt yields and therefore the rising discount rates, uh, but also this um, windfall tax, which is effectively what this uh, revenue cap means. And the uncertainty surrounding that has been, you know, when they've said, you know, they don't know what the level is going to be and how long it's going to last for. And therefore, it's been very difficult to, to value these companies. But actually, I think that just creates an opportunity. The fact is, renewables are here to stay. They are an incredibly important part of our net zero drive. Uh, the government can't really do anything to disincentivize investment in this area, given that it needs private investment to meet its net zero targets. And therefore, I don't think it will be too punitive. But, you know, it's quite right that these companies are asked to give up some of the really extraordinary super profits they're making, given that electricity is priced off gas and the renewable companies have nothing to do with the gas price. It costs them the same to generate electricity this year as it did last year and the year before. And yet, rather than selling it at 50 pounds a megawatt hour, which basically they were before the Ukraine war, you know, the current one month forward price is 400 pounds per megawatt hour. And some of these companies have locked into, uh, I saw the other day, the Bluefield Solar had locked into a contract to sell the electricity, they generate at over £300 per megawatt hour. UK Wind is the biggest seller in the current market at current merchant power prices. So they are making extreme profits. 
They are indeed. And of course, the kind of deal that they were talking about with the government was to exchange, if you like, their short-term excess profits. Uh, I know the government doesn't want to call it a windfall tax, what they're talking about, but that's basically what it is, as you said, in return for some more better-priced, longer-term contracts, which will guarantee cash flows into the future. And that probably would be welcomed by investors, would it not? If that was the outcome at a, at a sensible level, that would actually be welcomed by the investors, I think, would not? Yes. So I think that's a really interesting opportunity. So what, what the government announced was this cost plus revenue limit, uh, which is effectively a windfall tax. But what they also said was that they are in discussions with the industry for a voluntary CFD. Now, CFDs are the subsidy scheme that is currently or has been for the last four or five years in progress for the sector. And what it means is in open auction, you agree a price at which the government will guarantee that you get for the electricity you generate, in exchange for which you give up all the upside. And in the auctions that took place uh, relatively recently, and it's over a 15-year time period or so, those prices were around 50 or £60 pounds per megawatt hour. So a couple of years ago, everybody was very worried in this sector about how low long-term electricity prices would be and what impact that would have on the renewable sector. And it's not impossible, it seems unlikely in the current environment, that we go back to that situation. So exchanging current very high prices for 15 years of a guaranteed minimum price that you could sell what you produce at would be a very valuable thing for these companies in the sense that it would reduce their cost of capital because it would reduce the level of uncertainty. It would provide some visibility and some assurance for future investment because you know what you would be getting for what you generate. So if that was to be the outcome, then I think that would be uh, excellent for the renewable industry. And it would also help, if you like, the investor clientele, which they have historically been targeting, which is uh, investors who are primarily interested in, in securing income rather than uh, uh, necessarily capital gains. They've, they've made some capital gains, of course. But I guess the issue for them in the short term is as long as these uh, trusts continue to trade at discounts, they can't continue what they've been doing for the last few years, which is raising more equity to invest in more capacity and so on. And one or two of them might have been in a position where they've committed to do something. They don't yet have all the money they need unless they go and borrow it, which is going to cost them more money. So how important do you think it is that uh, the sector in general and some of the better companies in particular get back to trading at premiums if they can? I think the premiums are obviously very important for being able to issue equity, raise new money to invest in new wind or new solar or whatever. So that is very important. But I think it's important to realise that the NAVs are not fixed in stone like regular uh, share prices that are traded every day. So those valuation models that fix the NAVs have a number of variable and moving parts in them, of which you know the discount rate is one of them. And so I think that when you talk about a premium or a discount, it's not to a very hard number. And there are perhaps different views as to what valuations are. For example, some of the inflation assumptions in a lot of the companies are very low indeed, particularly in the short term. Uh, and that, of course, has held the NAVs down to levels below where they would be if they perhaps put in more consensual inflation forecasts. So does that mean you think they might be in a position to raise some money, even if it's a discount to the reported NAV, which uh, may be 
either understating or overstating what the actual asset value is, given that it's all in the eye of the beholder, ultimately, or in the eye of the modeler. I, I think it would be very difficult for these companies to issue shares at a discount to their stated NAV. But what I think they can do is they have more flexibility in managing their NAVs. Okay, but that, of course, means you've got to have a lot of forensic uh, work to work out uh, what the model is saying and how they differ from one trust to another and so on. It's a difficult business. I think behind all this also that one of the troubles is with higher interest rates. You know, And this, as I say, I do think is a real sea change in all investments, is that in order to put debt to work, you know, that was fine when you were borrowing money at, you know, one and a half or 2% and then investing in, in something, whether it's real estate or renewable energy, generating a net initial yields of 5% or, or returns of 4 or 5%. That was a decent spread. But if the risk-free rate is much higher, the gill yield is much higher and your borrowing costs are higher, then that debt is not accretive to shareholders. So using debt to enhance and generate more income and returns for shareholders doesn't work. Well, that might bring us on to have quickly just have a word about the commercial property sector more widely. A lot of trusts have been trading at discounts all the way through this year, but it has got significantly worse in the last few weeks because partly of the things you're saying, that the investors become to realise they've got to uh, adapt for this new environment in which uh, everybody is operating if guilt yields are going to be higher permanently. What's your view about that sector in the light of what's been happening? Do you think that too has uh, been an overreaction? I mean, the, clearly the real estate sector has had a terrible year. It's down 40% or so year to date. It trades on a discount to historic and therefore stale NAV of about 40% too, and has an average dividend yield of 5%. But property is very sensitive to interest rates. And that's not only to do with the repricing of risk, but it's the higher borrowing costs that reduce cash flow and the history has been that when interest rates are high, property finds the going very difficult. And there was a piece of work I saw last week that was quite interesting in saying, well, given this fall in share prices, what is the implied yield expansion of these underlying companies? I mean, how much has it gone up? And I think the conclusion from actually two different pieces of work I saw was about 170 or 180 basis points that takes the initial yield of their properties up to about 5.7-5.8%. And that kind of feels about right, given where guild yields are at the moment. So I think it's too early to buy, too late to sell in the real estate sector as an average. And of course, one should never talk about averages. And I think the other thing, as I said, is it's when gearing does not create incremental returns for investors because it's the same as the net initial yield. That makes the going quite hard. I do think that there is a difference there. As I say before, I still really like the long-dated inflation-linked revenue streams of some of the players there. So as I said earlier on, I think with inflation being, was it may peak in the next six months or so, actually embedded inflation is going to be part of the system for the time to come. So if we can get inflation linked and we're locked into some inflation linkage, I think that will be really good for investors so that dividends should be able to go up in line with inflation. So behind all this, I think it does make it a very attractive area. 
I mean, the flip side, of course, of all this is that uh, you run a monthly income fund that only invests in uh, alternative assets, essentially, to generate income for your fund holders. The flip side of discounts widening a lot, obviously, is that the yields on the share price, at least, are becoming rather better. And you've just alluded to that. So let's have a look at then a couple of things that you own, shall we? Perhaps I'm just looking down your list. In the Alternative Monthly Income Fund, you have uh, Supermarket REIT, you have LXI, one of these trusts that specialises in long leases and so on, and it competed a, a merger with another one, Secure Income REIT, uh, only a few weeks ago. What do you think of the prospects of those? Presumably, uh, from what you're saying, you're still quite pleased uh, with them. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm still positive with them. I think it, you know, it's clearly not as attractive as it was, but that has been reflected in the fall in the share price. But if you look at something like LXI, you've got a weighted average unexpired lease term of 26 years. So that's 26 years of visible income coming in. It trades on a 16% discount to its NAV with a 5% yield. It's 98% inflation linked in one way or another. Now, that's not fully inflation linked. So it's really important in the property sector to know that there's caps and collars on a lot of this inflation linking. But it is 98% of the portfolio is inflation linked. And the debt at 33% loan to value is really quite manageable. And I think that's one of the other things that's really important to look at in, well, not just in the property sector, but in all of them, is debt and how much is the debt, but also has it been locked in at lower rates or is it floating? And a lot of these companies that were using RCFs and RCFs are generally, but not always, generally floating rate interests rates have got much, much higher interest costs to pay. Now rates have gone up. So they're therefore, as you say, less attractive, though, of course, uh, that may be already be reflected in the price. But I mean, what you're looking for is secure sources of income. I'm sure many listeners to this podcast are also interested in that. And you, know, you get a premium for that. I'm just looking down some of your largest holdings at the last time they were reported. They may have changed, of course, since then. Um, but I'm looking down, you've got a couple of interesting specialist trusts. You've got uh, Digital Nine and uh, Biopharma Credit, which is a debt fund. Tell us about those two. What's the kind of attraction of those two? To you? Yeah, so Biopharma Credit is a specialist lending fund. And I draw that because it just reported this week. And it is uh, run by a specialist lending outfit called Pharmacon. And they have rights on the royalties or income streams of, of life science products that are in the market generating income at the moment. They yield about 7.5%, and they've just reported a special dividend on top of that. So that's been a very nice income source. And I think the, the specialist lending area where the banks vacated that space has opened it up to operations like Pharmacon to fill that space. And as lending becomes more difficult, uh, I think the specialist lenders have an opportunity. Now, so long as their loans are short dated, when they get repaid, they can then lend that money out again at higher rates uh, and therefore should become more profitable as a result. I mean, the issue there, I guess, is that Via pharma credit, they do operate in dollars, do they not? They, they do operate in dollars, and that's, of course, been a good thing too. Yep. But we haven't talked about the dollar. That may not go on forever, though, of course. But uh, No, no, no. But it's <laughs> been, been good. But I think generally, I mean, behind all this, there is something that is actually really important. And that is that when we're talking about these alternative sources of income now, we've got to be really talking about not only the income, but also the total return. That they're generating. So they need to do something more 
than just be bond proxies. You know, it was fine being a bond proxy when index linked guilds were all negative and when guilds were yielding basically nothing and there was no alternative sources of income. But uh, now there are. I think we need to ensure that, A, the income is high and growing, and that's really important, so high and growing, but also we need to look at the total returns and they need to do something a bit more than that. So when you're looking at infrastructure, I think something like D9 which is um, a type of infrastructure, which is digitally based infrastructure. There is quite good opportunities for growth, increasing the total return, as well as the income stream that comes from basically the rent derived from the assets. I want to just run three more names past you, Richard, because it's always interesting to talk about specific trusts to the extent you can. In the uh, renewable energy sector, you've got Gore Street Energy, which is one of these battery storage trusts, been performing reasonably well. And uh, you've got Greencoat UK Wind. Now, Presumably, Greencoat UK Wind is one which, as you said before, has high exposure to merchant prices, i.e. You know, market prices. That you'll be watching quite closely to see what happens to the uh, pricing regime there, I guess. But tell us about Gore Street Energy, why you like that one. So Gore Street Energy is a battery storage company, and it's like Gresham House Energy Storage 2, which I also own, which is another battery company. And these are really the links that make renewables work for the country. Because the trouble with the renewables, of course, is the intermittency with which they generate. So the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine, but you need to be able to store the electricity they generate and then sell it at a time when people actually want to use it. And that is basically the opportunity, so the the, the trading opportunity for time shifting of electricity between when it's generated and when it's stored. So it is an integral part of making renewables work, I think. So that's the reason I like it. And I, I, I think that volatility in the in power prices, you know, has helped enormously. I think they are not particularly impacted by the windfall taxes or the generation. They have traditionally provided, you know, services to the grid. So frequency controls to make sure you get stable power, which is very useful and also a very important function. But it's the trading opportunity, which I think is the most interesting part of it. And what sort of yield do you get on the, on those at the moment? So all of these have moved up, I mean, really quite a lot. So, you know, the yield is up on north of 6%. So, you know, that's pretty good. That's not unattractive, indeed, even in this market. <laughs> indeed, indeed. 6% is the new 3% or 4%. I think. Well, I think that's right. Probably 6% is the new 5% anyway. <laughs> You know, most of these alternative incomes are for renewable and infrastructure. They all have basically shifted down between 10 and 15% since the mini budget as a result, direct result of the sudden rising guilt reels that we saw after that. So then let me ask you about another. This is perhaps more controversial, this one. And this is Hypnosis Songs, the music royalty company, which again has made an announcement this week about its financing. And uh, that's uh, led to a little bit of recovery in the share price. But that's a, a trust which has seen a huge swing in its discount, in its rating over the course of the last year, gone from a premium all the way down to a very substantial discount. Yeah. Do you think that what they've announced is is going to be enough to overcome the market's concerns about this one? Is it just about the debt and the cost of the debt uh, or the availability of debt, or is it about something else? So I think there are two worries that the market generally had. Firstly, it was the debt and the fact that it was 600 millions of floating rate debt. And when interest rates went up a lot, the interest charge went up a lot, and therefore people worried about the dividend not being covered as a result of the increased 
cost of the interest payments. What they've done is they've renegotiated that. They've got a new £700 million facility, so they've added £100 million onto it and fixed that in terms of interest rates. So they've, if you like, capped off the risk of the debt problem. The second issue I think they had was credibility around the valuations. So part of that is to do with the fact that it's a valuer that is effectively a single value for an asset class. Here is a new asset class. And I think there is just not enough history to know what the right level of discount rate to use is in valuing these assets or what the right fade rate how long these revenue streams for the songs last for. And one of the wonderful things about the investment company sector is we have had a whole load of new asset classes made available to investors that previously only institutions could get involved in, whether that's infrastructure or music royalties. Uh, And that has been a great democratization of investment that investment companies have enabled. But whenever we get a new asset class coming along, it takes time for people to really understand how it works and perhaps more into growing confidence in how the valuations are put together and whether they are an accurate reflection of what it's reasonable to expect from an investment perspective. So they use an 8.5% discount rate, and that's basically what has been used for quite a long time, although it was nine before, but that over time has been a long time. There are a number of private equity houses that are involved in this area. So Blackstone and KKR and Hypnosis have an arrangement with Blackstone. And in terms of the deals that Hypnosis have done for Blackstone, that provides some validation on the valuations of the assets that are held within Hypnosis. Uh, And so you've got a company with an extraordinary collection of assets that spread across lots and lots of songs on lots and lots of different genres across five decades of music. So we're not betting all on one song as to whether it's a hit or not a hit. And you've got an app that's trading to now at 45% discount to that NAV, which implies a discount rate of about 10%, I think, and on a 6% yield. And there are a number of really positive things that are happening at the moment in this industry. So the Copyright Royalty Board in the US has just reached an agreement that a larger share of the revenues of songs should go to the song owners. So that's now 15%, it was 12 uh, And so that is really useful. Streaming continues to grow, and that's especially in emerging markets. So places like China and India that you never got any revenue from before uh, are now contributing. There are new platforms coming along, so things like TikTok and Pattern and the like, which are incremental. And they mentioned TikTok as being actually a, a very useful additional revenue. And I think the final thing is that there's a lag time in which you collect the revenue from live performances. And we've had a recovery in live performances this year, which have come back after there obviously being very little during COVID. Uh, And so all the festivals, as you may know, Jonathan, uh, have come back strongly. I've been to several. And yes, and the revenues will be um, coming in uh, over the next year. And therefore, uh, I think there are, shall we say, lots of favourable wins to support this. So I still feel very positive about it and confident that actually they will overcome what appears to be a bit of turbulence and and lack of confidence in the market. 
Well, I'm sure they're hoping that'll be the case. So uh, finally, Richard, as I mentioned, you run two funds that invest in investment trusts, the Alternative Monthly Income and the Fund of Investment Trusts. Uh, we haven't talked about the latter much, but I wanted to talk to you about um, one other sector, which has been obviously much talked about in the last few weeks, and that is private equity. I'm looking down your list of holdings. To be honest, I don't see a lot of private equity in your funds. That's perhaps understandable why you wouldn't see much of them in the Alternative Monthly Income Fund. But um, what's your thought about that? There's obviously a lot of debate about whether the discounts there are justified or not, and they are very wide in a number of cases. They are indeed. So I think my thoughts about private equity, I mean, I'm very positive on private equity, actually. Um, I think those discounts are far too wide from where they should be. They may have been a bit tarnished by the growth capital sector, which I think is very different from traditional private equity. But I think there are two difficulties at the moment. One is that private equity has traditionally used a lot of debt in its businesses. And of course, with interest rates going up, that becomes more costly and therefore less beneficial to do. And secondly, with falling markets, and you know, markets are down a lot this year. You know, our headline UK market disguises how much the UK market is really down. And you know, markets around the world are down, and that means exit opportunities are probably less than they are in a rising market. And I think there are two things also that people worry about with private equity. And one is the the rating. And if the rating is rated is how you devalue the underlying assets of the same rating as happens in the quoted market, if the quoted market ratings have gone down, then they should come down in private equity too. So I think people are looking at stale NAVs based on ratings that were too high. And those ratings need to come down a bit. And therefore, the NAVs will come down a bit too, I suspect. But even if you do that, the discounts are still very big. Okay, so that, uh, I think, brings us to the end of our conversation, which will be very interesting. I suppose I should ask you for a thought about, um, none of us really knows how this is going to play out over the next six months. That's the nature of the business anyway. But uh, in these particularly volatile markets, where vulnerable to events, uh, whether that's in battlefields or uh, inside uh, number 10 or other centres of power, political power. Do you have a gut feeling about where we might be going through the winter? I mean, are we going to come out of this uh, feeling better or are we going to uh, still be uh, licking our wounds as we come out into, into spring? Well, I think UK politics is a shambles and will continue to, I think, command a risk premium as a result of that shambles. And until we get some stability and clarity and confidence back in the system, and that will be the case. My sense, if I'm maybe looking through the rose-tinted glasses, is that we get some kind of peak inflation and starts heading down, not up. That takes the pressure off interest rates, and therefore the market regains a bit of confidence in that. That would be my hope. My fear is that you need higher interest rates for longer to kill off inflation. So that drives us into recession, and therefore we get a hard earnings hit too. But that certainly hasn't happened yet. So um, I think we might see a bit of recovery in confidence over the next six months or so. So that was Richard Curling, manager of the Jupiter Monthly Alternative Income Fund and the Jupiter Fund of Investment Trust, uh, reflecting on what has been a quite uh, 
tumultuous week, I think it's fair to say, or quite a tumultuous month in the financial markets. And uh, we will be returning to that subject in due course. Next week, I shall be away, but the podcast will still be put out on Saturday. I have recorded an interview with Sandy Nairn, the uh, author of a very interesting book last year, The End of the Everything Bubble, who is also manager of an investment trust, the Global Opportunities Trust, based in Edinburgh. This book he wrote laid out in quite uh, clear terms why he thought we were going to see the kind of market conditions that we have, in fact, seen this year. It was published at the end of last year and has proved to be very prescient. Uh, So I thought it'd be useful to uh, give listeners a few of his insights into what's been going on and why, and more critically, perhaps, how long it might last. So that'll be next week's podcast. The following week, I wish you back to the normal format. I shall have guests on the program, and we will be talking about everything to do with investment trusts. So I look forward to seeing you then. And uh, in the words of the old Chinese curse, may we live in interesting times when we certainly are. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.